CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. It is a brisk winter day here in the wilds of Connecticut. My little uh, shitty dog, Jack-Jack, has affixed himself to the lip of the throne, the reading throne here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. He is splayed out. He's wearing his uh, Christmas sweater. It is not a Christmas-themed sweater, but it is a sweater he received for Christmas. He did not ask for the sweater uh, to be put on today, nor did I have the inclination to put the sweater on the dog because, frankly, if he freezes to death, that would be a blessing for me. But my dear Martha, upon my stating that I'm going to take the dogs for a hike, said, well, why don't you put on his sweater? And then I tried to put on the sweater and he started yelping unhappily and it, it apparently uh, I wasn't putting it on correctly because I don't know how to put on dog clothing. And then Martha said, you're putting it on backwards. So she put it on. And then we went out for a walk, and now we're back in the library, and he is, as I said, splayed comfortably on the throne. It is a brisk day. It is cold here. I have returned from Las Vegas, Nevada, where I had a terrific time with my friends of low these many years. And maybe you're saying, Michael... What what did you do when you were in Las Vegas? Did you go to Penn & Teller? Did you have Chinese food? Did you hang out? I did all those things. But more than that, and more importantly, I played poker. I played a fair amount of poker and held my own against the Las Vegas habitues of the poker room at the Wynn Casino. And it occurred to me that maybe I should start a a poker podcast in addition to Obscure, because I spend a lot of time lately thinking about poker, reading about poker, studying poker, and yet I am bad at poker. 
Now, I did fine this weekend, but but in poker, we have something called variance, which is basically luck. Sometimes you're going to do fine. Sometimes you're going to do not so fine. But over the long run, the good players will win. The bad players will lose. I consider myself at best a mediocre player, but this time I happen to win. And poker is a uh, is a game that goes back a very long time uh, in various forms, hundreds of years, not quite so far back as uh, Roman Britannic times, which is when, of course, the Romans occupied Britannia, the isle on which uh, uh, Jude the Obscure takes place. But Mr. Phillotson the betrothed to Sue Bridehead, the third point in the love triangle of Jude and Sue and Phillotson, has recently discovered, or rediscovered, I should say, a appreciation and love for Roman Britannic antiquities uh, in unremunerative, unremunerative labor, meaning this is just a little hobby that he's going to do. He's not going to make any money off of it. But it does tie to something that we've been talking about repeatedly. Some might say ad nauseum, which is Sue's obsession with her own anachronistic personality, her own habitating a time in which she feels she does not belong. And it seems like she is uh, as interested in the Roman times and the Greek times as Phillotson, because remember, she bought those pagan statues. And now Phillotson's digging around in his backyard looking for Roman Britannic antiquities to study. He's got nothing else to do. There's no TV. The internet out there is spotty at best. So that's what he does. And so when we left him, he was comparing the civilizations. He was compelling, compel inferences in startling contrast to accepted views on civilization of that time. So he was doing some work on this subject while Sue was off getting her training And we continue with the book. A resumption of this investigation, meaning the investigation of Roman Britannic antiquities, was the outward and apparent hobby of Phillotson at present. His ostensible reason for going alone into fields where causeways, dikes, and tumuli abounded. That's a good word, tumuli. I don't know what it means. I could look it up, but I think I feel like we get a sense of it. Stuff. I feel like tumuli means stuff or uh, it could mean some sort of fingernail fungus or shutting himself up in his house with a few urns, tiles and mosaics he had collected instead of calling round upon his neighbors who, for their part, had showed themselves willing enough to be friendly with him. But it was not the real or the whole reason after all. Oh, a mystery. Now, I've been listening to a podcast about Bigfoot hunting, and I wonder if Phillotson is a Bigfoot hunter. Thus, on a particular evening in the month, when it had grown quite late, to near midnight indeed, and the light of his lamp shining from his window at a salient angle of the hilltop town, over infinite miles of valley westward, announced as by words a place and person given over to study, he was not exactly studying. So Phillotson, we're about to find out, is a possessor of secrets, just like Jude, just like Sue, just like all of you out there listening. Even the most obscure personage in the world has their secrets. The interior of the room 
The books, the furniture, the schoolmaster's loose coat, his attitude at the table, even the flickering of the fire, bespoke the same dignified tale of undistracted research, more than creditable to a man who had no advantages beyond those of his own making. And yet the tale, true enough till latterly, was not true now. What do you think he's doing? I mean, just pause for a second. What do you think he's doing? I mean, my mind immediately goes to smut, of course, because I am a smutty individual and because I can think of nothing that he would be doing that would be secretive. I mean, what would he be doing? Maybe he's doing like vivisection on like townspeople that he meets. You know, maybe he's an axe murderer. And he's doing vivisection, which is also smutty in its way, but a different kind of smutty, I guess. What he was regarding was not history. They were historic notes written in a bold, womanly hand at his dictation some months before. And it was the clerical rendering of word after word that absorbed him. Hmm. He presently took from a drawer a carefully tied bundle of letters, few, very few, as correspondence counts nowadays. Each was in its envelope just as it had arrived, and the handwriting was of the same womanly character as the historic notes. He unfolded them one by one and read them musingly. At first sight, there seemed in these small documents to be absolutely nothing to muse over, They were straightforward, frank letters signed Sue B. Just such ones as would be written during short absences with no other thought than their speedy destruction and chiefly concerning books in reading and other experiences of a training school forgotten doubtless by the writer with the passing of the day of their inditing. I guess that means writing, I-N-D-I-T-I-N-G. In one of them, quite a recent one, the young woman said that she had received his considerate letter and that it was honorable and generous of him to say he would not come to see her oftener than she desired, the school being such an awkward place for callers and because of her strong wish that her engagement to him should not be known, which it would infallibly be if he visited her often." Over these phrases, the schoolmaster poured. What precise shade of satisfaction was to be gathered from a woman's gratitude that the man who loved her had not been often to see her? The problem occupied him, distracted him. Well, Phillotson, I mean, I can tell you, she doesn't like you. I mean, she thinks you're fine, but dude... I mean, you know, read between the lines, which I guess is literally what he's trying to do. He's got the lines. He's trying to read between them. What does it say between those lines? It says she's not into you. She's just not that into you, bro. And I know that probably hurts your feelings. But if it's any consolation, she doesn't seem to be that into Jude either. She just doesn't seem to be that into anybody. And it's not really her fault. Why does she need to be into anybody? She's trying to figure her own shit out. And, you know, with you obsessing over her, like Jude obsessing over her and everybody freaking out whenever, you know, she says the wrong thing or looks at him the wrong way or whatever, you know, you get all upset about it. Well, you know, how do you do, Phillotson? 
Get Over Yourself. This book could have been titled Get Over Yourself and filed under the self-help section in the Barnes Noble. And I'm telling you, it would be a big hit because that's really the message here. Get over yourself, guys. Sue, get over your, yourself. Jude, get over yourself. Phillipson, everybody get over themselves. Sometimes you're going to be into people. Sometimes you're not. My wife, Martha and I were talking about this the other night. How sometimes you have friends and you love them. Like you just adore your friends in short bursts, right? You see them for, for a couple hours and you're like, yeah, that's a great person. You don't want to hang out with them. You don't want to live with them. And she and we said, well, that's why our marriage works. Because we tend to spend a lot of time in opposite ends of the house. Or I travel. You know, we're just not in each other's grill all the time. And Phillotson is trying to stay up in her grill. He's like, can I come visit you? Should I write more letters? And she's like, dude, just chill out for a second. You know, maybe I'd like you more if you weren't such a needy little bitch. Well, this feels like a good time to pause. Do you ever hear something to yourself and wonder, hey, was that racist? Well, each Wednesday, the show Yo, Is This Racist? tries to answer that question. It's hosted by Andrew T. and Tony Newsom, who you probably know already from all your favorite Earwolf shows. Uh, in each episode, Tawny and Andrew cover racism in recent news and pop culture, and they answer burning questions from fan-submitted voicemails about your maybe racist co-workers, friends, and family members. Their guests include a huge range of actors, writers, and comedians like Jimmy Yo Yang, from Silicon Valley and Crazy Rich Asians, comedian Nicole Byer, LeVar Burton, John Lovett from Pod Save America. Listen and subscribe to Yo! Is This Racist on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Back on Obscure, and I'm going to keep reading now. Part 3, Chapter 6. That was a little French for fun. He opened another drawer and found therein an envelope from which he drew a photograph of Sue as a child long before he had known her, standing under trellis work with a little basket in her hand. There was another of her as a young woman, her dark eyes and hair making a very distinct and attractive picture of her, which just disclosed two the thoughtfulness that lay behind her lighter moods. It was a duplicate of the one she had given Jude and would have given to any man. Well, what does that mean? Let me think about that for a second. He, what is, what does that mean? I mean, is that just a thing you do? You give away photos of yourself to somebody that you don't care about that much? Or is Thomas Hardy saying like any guy who showed any interest in her, she would have given him this photo to kind of encourage them to be interested in her because that's how she gets her jollies. Is that what that means? Phillotson brought it halfway to his lips, but withdrew it in doubt at her perplexing phrases, ultimately kissing the dead pasteboard with all the passionateness and more than all the devotion of a young man of 18. Nerd. That's a nerd move, right? I'm going to kiss the photo. Who does that? Who does that? I've never kissed a photo in my life. Kissed a photo? I've beat off to photos. I've never kissed one. 
The schoolmaster's was an unhealthy-looking, old-fashioned face, rendered more old-fashioned by his style of shaving. A certain gentlemanliness had been imparted to it by nature, suggesting an inherent wish to do rightly by all. His speech was a little slow, but his tones were sincere enough to make his hesitation no defect. His graying hair was curly and radiated from a point in the middle of his crown. There were four lines across his forehead, and he only wore spectacles when reading at night. It was almost certainly a renunciation forced upon him by his academic purpose rather than a distaste for women, which had hitherto kept him from closing with one of the sex in matrimony. Wait, what? What was a renunciation? His glasses? They're saying like, oh, is, is Hardy saying like boys with glasses will never get passes? And, and so he's not. So when he wears glasses, it's not that he's I mean, what is he saying? There were four lines across his forehead and he only wore spectacles when reading at night. Right. Well, a lot of people re, uh, have spectacles when reading at night because you get a little old and your eyes get a little blurry and it's dark there and there's no electricity. It was almost certainly a renunciation forced upon him by his academic purpose. Right. Because he, he reads a lot. Rather than a distaste for women. Well, what the fuck is that? Rather th- What? What? He wore spectacles when reading at night. How could that be a distaste for women? What does that have to do with anything? Which had hitherto kept him from closing with one of the sex in matrimony. So does he have a distaste for women or does he not? It, it, This is, you know, I expected when I opened Jude the Obscure to find many a perplexing sentence. And to be honest, I've been relieved that there haven't been more because I thought, oh, I'm not smart enough to read this book, but I'm reading it and I feel like I'm absorbing it pretty well. And I feel like I'm explaining it to the best of my ability, which may not be accurate, but I feel like it at least sounds authoritative because I feel like you idiots don't know any more than I do about this particular book or about this particular uh, era in literature. Some of you do. And you write to me on Twitter and tell me that I'm a fool and I am forced to agree with you because I don't know enough to disagree with you. But in this case, rather than a distaste for women... I really don't know what that means. But anyway, he's old and he wears glasses. That's what they're saying. Such silent proceedings as those of this evening were repeated many and oft times when he was not under the eye of the boys, whose quick and penetrating regard would frequently become almost intolerable to the self-conscious master in his present anxious, anxious care for Sue, making him, in the gray hours of morning, dread to meet anew the gimlet glances, lest they should read what the dream within him was. Right, because honestly, there's nothing more intimidating than children. Ultimately, kids look right through you and they know when you're a phony and they know when you're up to no good and they and they zero in on whatever your anxieties are about yourself and they just whip you with them, don't they? He had honorably acquiesced in Sue's announced wish that he was not often to visit her at the training school. But at length, his patience being sorely tried, he set out one Saturday afternoon to pay her an unexpected call. 
There, the news of her departure, expulsion, as it might almost have been considered, was flashed upon him without warning or mitigation as he stood at the door expecting in a few minutes to behold her face, and when he turned away, he could hardly see the road before him. Right, she ran away and she didn't tell him, and that's why she's like, yeah, maybe you better not come visit me so much, because, you know, the school is, I mean, I'm really busy at school, and, and uh, you know, I've got to help out in the kitchen and you know, I've got my sock darning to do and all the crochet work that, that me and the girls do at night for the orphans. But what she didn't say is that she'd been kicked out or that she'd ran away, run through a river, gone to Jude's house, uh, had a long night with him and then ran away to some friend's house. She, he doesn't know any of that. And if he still thinks he's betrothed to her after that, after she kept this information from him, then he is as much of an idiot as Jude because every man is an idiot in front of a woman or in front of love, let's say. When faced with love, every man and every woman, all of us, become idiots. Insentient idiots. We just don't know what we're doing. Sue had, in fact, never written a line to her suitor on the subject, although it was 14 days old. A short reflection told him that this proved nothing. (laughs) Right. That proves, I mean, look, that proves nothing. The fact, the fact that she basically ran away, but didn't tell him, come on, that doesn't mean anything. That, I mean, that it's only, it's only been two weeks. She's probably been busy. You know, I mean, she ran away. She's got to find lodging. She's got to find somebody to support her. She, she's got to find a job. She, you know, she doesn't have time to write to the person she's allegedly engaged to. Who has time for that? This proved nothing. A natural delicacy being as ample a reason for silence as any degree of blameworthiness. They had informed him at the school where she was living, and having no immediate anxiety about her comfort, his thoughts took the direction of a burning indignation against the training school committee. In his bewilderment, Phillotson entered the adjacent cathedral, just now in a direly dismantled state by reason of the repairs. He sat down on a block of freestone. Okay, now we're doing some symbolism here, because who's the stonemason? Jude. And where's he going? He's going to the adjacent cathedral, which is in a direly dismantled state by reason of the repairs. And what's he sitting on? A block of freestone. So... I mean, this is a real question, isn't it, about who's free and who isn't in this book. And it seems like none of these characters are free. Sue is the closest because Sue, in the end, kind of does whatever she wants and damn the torpedoes. But Phillotson is held captive by his ambition and his own thwarted dreams. And Jude, of course, is held captive by the mores of the day and his ambition and his love for Sue. Like the guys in this thing are bound The lady and the other lady too, Arabella, they're both unbound. They kind of do what they want. And there's a sense of, um, oh, I don't even know what the word is. Like, is Thomas Hardy being judgy about that? Or is he sort of being like, yeah, that's the way it should be. It's hard for me to say exactly. He certainly doesn't approve of Arabella. We know that. Arabella, she's terrible. Sue, on the other hand, is more complicated, but still is terrible. I mean, does terrible things all the time. I think it's through her own insecurity. I think it's because she herself feels so lost and maybe she needs a little stone in her life to keep her on the ground. But 
I would rather be Sue than either Phillotson or Jude. And I don't like any of them. I do like Jude. I have to say, I like Jude. I feel, you know, despite him being a wet noodle, I have the most sympathy for him because he's trying the hardest. Anyway, we got to take a little break and then we will journey on. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back. We're going to read just a little more of Chapter 6. Before I close out the episode, Mr. Phillotson has just gone to see Jude at the cathedral. He sat down on a block of freestone, regardless of the dusty imprint it made on his breeches, and his listless eyes following the movements of the workmen, he presently became aware that the reputed culprit, Sue's lover Jude, was one amongst them. Oh. So he walked into the cathedral and sat down on the freestone, and who does he see but Jude? Jude had never spoken to his former hero since the meeting by the model of Jerusalem. Having inadvertently witnessed Phillotson's tentative courtship of Sue in the lane, there had grown up in the younger man's mind a curious dislike to think of the elder, to meet him, to communicate in any way with him. And since Phillotson's success in obtaining at least her promise had become known to Jude, he had frankly recognized that he did not wish to see or hear of his senior any more, learn anything of his pursuits, or even imagine again what excellencies might appertain to his character. On this very day of the schoolmaster's visit, Jude was expecting Sue as she had promised, and when therefore he saw the schoolmaster in the nave of the building, saw, moreover, that he was coming to speak to him, he felt no little embarrassment, which Phillotson's own embarrassment prevented his observing. Jude joined him, 
and they both withdrew from the other workmen to the spot where Phillotson had been sitting. Jude offered him a piece of sackcloth for a cushion and told him it was dangerous to sit on the bare block. Yes, yes, said Phillotson abstractedly, as he reseated himself, his eyes resting on the ground as if he were trying to remember where he was. I won't keep you long. It was merely that I have heard that you have seen my little friend Sue recently. It occurred to me to speak to you on that account. I merely want to ask about her. I think I know that, Jude hurriedly said, about her escaping from the training school and her coming to me. Yes. Well, Jude, for a moment, felt an unprincipled and fiendish wish to annihilate his rival at all cost. By the exercise of that treachery, which love for the same woman renders possible to men the most honorable in every other relation of life, he could send off Philotin in agony and defeat by saying that the scandal was true and that Sue had irretrievably committed herself with him. But his action did not respond for a moment to his animal instinct. And what he said was, I am glad of your kindness in coming to talk plainly to me about it. You know what they say, that I ought to marry her. What? And I... <laughs> what? That was my... um indignant Phillotson. What? And I wish with all my soul I could. Phillotson trembled, and his naturally pale face acquired a corpse-like sharpness in its lines. I had no idea that it was of this nature. God forbid. No, no, said Jude, aghast. I thought you understood. I mean that were I in a position to marry her or someone and settle down instead of living in lodgings here and there, I should be glad. I don't know. He's backpedaling here. And then it says what he had really meant was simply that he loved her. But since this painful matter has been opened up, what really happened? asked Phillotson with the firmness of a man who felt that a sharp smart now was better than a long agony of suspense hereafter. Cases arise, and this is one, when even ungenerous questions must be put to make false assumptions impossible and to kill scandal. Jude explained readily giving the whole series of adventures, including the night at the shepherd's, her wet arrival at his lodging, her indisposition from her immersion, their vigil of discussion, and his seeing her off next morning. Well, now, said Phillotson at the conclusion, I take it as your final word, and I know I can believe you, that the suspicion which led to her rustication is an absolutely baseless one? It is, said Jude solemnly. Absolutely, so help me God. So, you know, there, Jude's basically saying, I heard you slept with my betrothed, my fiance. And Jude's going, look, I hung out with her and we spent a couple nights together and she got drunk and she ran away from school and she came to me and we did the farmer's daughter thing, but nothing happened, I swear. And Phillotson's like, all right. I mean, 
If you're Phillotson in this situation, you want so desperately to believe, I suppose, that your engagement is still on, that this woman may still love you, but you know, you know, it's off, dude. It's off. The whole thing has gone off. It's gone off the rails. Totally. She ran away and she didn't tell you. I mean, what do you think's happening? What do you think is happening here? She's not into you. There's probably some spinster in that new town where that school is, where you're living, maybe a nice widow, maybe somebody who also wears spectacles at night, not from distaste of men, but just because she hasn't found the right one. And the two of you could go traipsing through the countryside together, looking for old mosaics and urns. You could have a fabulous time, but you've got your heart set on this, on Miss Thang over there, young Miss Thang, and you're refusing to see the simple truth that's staring you in the face. She doesn't want to marry you. She doesn't want to hang out. She's not into your, uh, your hairline that starts in the middle of your head and your Jufro. She's not into it. I don't know if it's a Jufro, but you know, he, he, it said he's got curly gray hair that kind of starts in the middle of his head. Sounds very Jufro-y to me. You know, he's dignified. He's respectable. He's a gentleman of another time, an earlier time. And he does not need to suffer these indignities so late in life. My God, he's 45 years old. He could teeter over at any moment. Why must he spend his infirm age pining after Miss Thang? He deserves better. The schoolmaster rose. Each of the twain felt that the interview could not comfortably merge in a friendly discussion of their recent experiences after the manner of friends. And when Jude had taken him round and shown him some features of the renovation which the old cathedral was undergoing, Phillotson bade the young man a good day and went away. Well, that's as good a time to end as any I think it was an episode of some revelation. Phillotson found out that uh, Sue, you know, young Miss Thang just isn't having it. And he confronted Jude and Jude, rather than just say, go fuck yourself, old man, was as polite as he could have been and did tell him the truth. You know, this is one moment where it's probably a relief for me anyway that Jude hadn't tried anything at the farmer's house. Like, you know, he, he, Jude has been such a perfect gentleman. And this is the one moment in the book so far where I'm like, oh, that's good that he's been a perfect gentleman because it would have been an awkward conversation if he had had to lie to Phillotson or worse, if he had told him the truth, if they had had a romp in the hay at, at, at the farmer's. So I don't know. You know, uh, Sue's going to show up there. She's going to see them both. It's going to get ugly. Sue's probably going to meet somebody. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I'm I'm feeling um, not unengaged from this story, but I wish I were slightly more engaged with because I feel like we're kind of going in circles a little bit. We're spinning donuts a little bit in the parking lot of the 7-Eleven. And I just want us to get that slurpy. You know, I want there to be some serious slurping one way or the other. Something's got to give. And I guess we'll find out what gives next time on another scintillating episode of Obscure. Until then, I wish you adieu.
Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Judy Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nesea. Spanish Aki Presents. <laughs> <laughs>